If you would grab a Bible, let's turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4 is where we will get started in just a moment. John chapter 4. Good to see you this morning. Good to see that we have visitors with us. We want you to know that we're glad that you're here. I have been a little bit of a visitor lately because I've been going and toing, going to and fro. Toing and froing isn't really verbs, but uh, I am thankful to be home. Uh, I mentioned uh, before the Q&A session, I've got one more meeting for the year. It's next week. I'll be in the Pine Bluff. And uh, so I will be gone next week and I will miss you all. But uh, after that, I should be home, at least in terms of my meeting schedule for uh, the rest of the year. But it's good to see you and uh, looking forward to things we're going to share and talk about and think about for a few minutes this morning. John chapter 4, verse 27 is where I want to get started with. John 4, 27. Just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. So the disciples have left Jesus by a well in Samaria to go buy food. And when they return, they find him talking, in fact, in some kind of serious conversation with a Samaritan woman. And the woman herself, earlier in the chapter, is surprised that Jesus would talk to her. He says, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? And that's really what the disciples, it says, about them in verse Let's see, verse 27 there, they marveled that he was talking with a woman. So this woman not only has a deep, engaged, spiritual conversation with Jesus, she also becomes a kind of evangelist for Jesus, where she goes into the town and says, come hear this man, he might even be the Messiah. So what happens here is that Jesus breaks all the rules of Jewish piety and Jewish social convention in just one conversation. So I've been asked to talk about women and the roles of women, particularly in the church. And while I want to talk about some of that toward the end of the lesson, I really want to take some time to set our context by thinking about the relationship between Jesus and women. I think that we can learn a lot from the way Jesus engages with women, particularly in light of the fact that his society was what we might call a little bit closed and the views of women that were prominent at the time are very different from the views that we experience today. And as we look at Jesus and how Jesus treats women and shows his appreciation for and the value of women, I think it'll help us to see how we should handle some of the difficult questions that come from engaging with the texts of the New Testament and with our own culture today. So let's just start by talking about Jesus and his response and engagement with women. Let's say first that Jesus pays attention to women. I think that's the reason that in this session, in this little scene, both the woman and the disciples are mystified at Jesus because what he does in engaging with this woman at the well just wasn't done. Everybody is a little surprised at the way he handles the situation, and yet Jesus pays attention to her. I want to give you a little bit of the background of that. <laughs> Jewish teachers who were prominent during the time of Jesus warned Jewish men about talking to women. Don't talk too much to women. There were some sexual connotations to some of that, that maybe there would be some attraction that would happen. It's just better to not talk to them. And on top of that, there are expectations that a Samaritan woman would have been considered unclean from birth, at least among Jews. 
Some ancient texts even show that just asking a woman for a drink of water could be construed as flirting with her. Not to mention this woman seems to have a reputation for sexual looseness from the fact that she says, I've had five husbands. Well, Jesus says you've had five husbands and the one that you have now is not your husband. So you got all of those barriers and Jesus just busts through all of them to have a real, long, spiritual, deep, meaningful conversation with this woman. He does not show her sexual attention, but he definitely shows her attention because Jesus pays attention to women. Let's go to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 7. We're just going to look through a series of scenes here and see how Jesus consistently notices what the other Jewish men around him don't notice. Luke chapter 7 and verse 36. It says, Luke 7, 36, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet... He would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So this woman, who is simply known as a sinner, we don't know her name, she interrupts the dinner. She interrupts it because she is anointing Jesus' feet, and she begins to cry, and then she begins to wipe his feet with her hair, and everybody pretends they don't notice. Isn't that amazing? It's as if, no, we don't want to call any attention to this, And the only indicator you have that anybody pays any attention to the woman is that Simon thinks something. He thinks if this man were a prophet, he wouldn't let this woman touch him. But I love the question Jesus asks. It's in verse 44. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I just love that question. Simon, do you even acknowledge that there is another human being here? There is a woman here. And yet this woman that you pretend not to see is doing more for me than you did. And he goes on to talk about that. So what happens is Jesus notices this woman. He accepts worship from this woman. He has an appreciation for the gifts that she is bringing and the emotion that it's requiring of her. And then he tells her, your sins are forgiven. So we can safely say that this woman leaves this interaction with Jesus in better shape than the Pharisee who invited him. That's powerful because it means Jesus is not just focused on the men, as in, this is the big boy table, women not allowed. Instead, he is focused on everyone and he pays attention to this woman who others had simply dismissed as a woman who was a sinner. Turn a page back to Luke 7 and verse 11, a little earlier in the chapter here. Verse 11, it says, Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. So I want you to see Jesus notices this woman. Now there's the whole town, there's all this grieving going on, this great crowd, and yet Jesus sees the woman. He knows about her situation, that she's lost her husband, so she's a widow. Now she's lost her son, there's her only son. And he talks to her, do not weep. Then he goes and raises her son, and he brings her son back to her, 
because he is focused on her. This is a miracle done out of compassion for this woman. And in fact, you see a lot of that in Jesus' life, where Jesus is going to do healings that are specifically about women or for women. Jesus is going to heal a woman who is in the synagogue, who is bent over and has been for many years, and he calls her a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound. He says, it doesn't matter that it's the Sabbath. It's my job to heal people like this. He pays attention to women. He raises the daughter of Jairus. And while he's on the way to do that, there is a woman with a hemorrhage who touches the hem of his garment and is healed. Jesus pays attention to women. So, it's not just that Jesus notices them. Sometimes he blesses them. Sometimes he puts the spotlight on them. Sometimes he defends them, like the woman caught in adultery, who everybody brings to him for judgment without bringing the man who obviously was also caught in adultery. And Jesus defends her and says, whoever is without sin among you, let him throw the first stone at her. He defends Mary when Mary anoints him and all the other disciples are going to criticize her about that. Jesus focuses on and pays attention to women. Not only that, Jesus accepts important contributions from women. Look in Luke chapter 8 here. We're in Luke. In Luke chapter 8, right after telling this story, about this woman who was a sinner, uh, kind of interrupting dinner. Then Luke talks about some other women. Luke 8 and verse 1. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. So... These are women who are part of Jesus' entourage. They're going around with Jesus. They're following him. The 12, he says, were with him, and also these women. Now, it's not clear which of these women used to be demon-possessed. We know Mary Magdalene was because he says specifically seven demons had come out of her. But there are women here who play a prominent role in his ministry. One of them, it says, is the wife of Herod's household manager. So, you know... We probably all have somebody who maybe is distantly related to some political figure or know somebody who knows somebody. You know, that would be what this is like. Hey, the, her husband works for Herod. Is the household manager kind of a big deal? And he says, well, his household manager's wife was part of Jesus' entourage, followed Jesus. And they were, it says in verse 3, patrons. They provided for them out of their means. One scholar says that just the fact that these women would travel with the group would have been viewed as scandalous. The fact that there are women who are going around with men and following learning from Jesus. And yet, Jesus accepts them and their contribution to his ministry. Let's go over to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. So not only is Jesus' ministry financed in large part by women, according to Luke chapter 8. But here we see sometimes there are women who seem to have a better feel for what Jesus is doing than the men do, particularly the apostles. Let me remind you that while the scene that we're about to read is going on, the apostles are arguing about which one of them is the greatest. The apostles are, their minds are in a different place. The, when Jesus is telling them what's about to happen, how he's about to be killed, they're arguing with him. But listen to what Mary does in Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 3. It says, While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came 
with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So the disciples, now we learn that this woman is Mary, by the way, from John's account, but the disciples begin to scold or criticize or rebuke her. They think this was a waste. After all, she has taken a very expensive flask of ointment and basically just poured it out on Jesus. And they're thinking, we could have used this. Now Judas is thinking, I could have stolen this. So all of this is going on, and Jesus stands up for Mary. He says in verse 6, leave her alone. She's done something for me. In fact, not only does Jesus say, hey, don't be, be nice to the girls. He doesn't just say that. What he says is, listen. Mary understands more of what's happening here than any of you do. She has anointed me for my burial. And not only that, I want you to notice verse 9. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Wherever the gospel is preached, this woman will be mentioned. She will always be tied intimately to the death of Jesus because of what she has done. So when you ask the question, well, how did Jesus feel about women? I think that says a lot. He accepts a kind of contribution from her and has praise for her that is far out of, well, far beyond what he does for the apostles in this moment. Jesus never refuses kindness or gifts like these because, no, this is a boys' club and girls aren't allowed. Instead, women support his ministry and women show him kindness and Jesus accepts that. Also... Jesus accepts women as disciples, that he allows women to come in and learn like the men. Look in chapter 10 of Luke, Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 and verse 38. Luke 10, 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, we're in Luke 10 and verse 39, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So, Jesus goes into Mary and Martha's house. This is also Lazarus's house, by the way, although he's not mentioned. Lazarus is not as important as Mary and Martha. And Martha is busy or distracted with much serving, while Mary, I want you to notice the phrasing in verse 39. It says, Mary sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. That term, to sit at someone's feet, is a specific term about discipleship. It's the same term that Paul uses when he describes how he learned at the feet of Gamaliel. To learn at someone's feet is to be their disciple. It is a formal relationship. It's not just about location. I just happen to be near the guy's feet. It is instead, I am a disciple. I am learning from him. So, 
Not only does Jesus accept that and begin to teach her, he also seems to expect Martha to do the same thing. When Martha starts complaining and saying, now I need her to come help me serve, Jesus says, oh no, we're not doing that. No, Mary has chosen the good part. It will not be taken away from her. Martha, instead, you're the one with the problem. You're the one who's distracted, not Mary. Mary has her feet on straight. So, slow down for a moment and process that. Here's an opportunity for Jesus to say, you know what, Martha, you're right. It's not really a woman's place to be learning about things like this. She needs to be in the kitchen. This is an opportunity for Jesus to say, you know, we, we probably have gotten a little carried away. But Jesus refuses to tell Mary to go away. He refuses to say, this is not for her. He refuses to say, she needs to go do some serving like everyone else, like all the other women. Instead, Jesus is saying, no, this is for everyone. There's another time where Jesus talks to Martha in the same way. This is in John 11. It says, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. I want you to notice that dialogue where he's saying, here, Martha, here's the truth about me. Here's the truth about what's coming. Do you believe that? And she says, yes. And it is a relationship in which they are engaging about spiritual things. Jesus accepts women as disciples. We've already read there were a number of women who traveled with Jesus. Please understand, these were not women who were just there to do the cooking and the cleaning. These were women who were there to learn. They were there to be disciples. They have been blessed and liberated and healed and excited by Jesus' works and Jesus' teaching. They're going to be disciples just like the men. Now, in Jesus' time, adult co-education... Men and women learning together was completely unheard of. Women who are learning Jesus' teaching as closely as the men were would have been a problem for outsiders. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But I think it's important to note that there were a lot of women. In fact, all of the apostles forsook Jesus and fled. Who is it that is surrounding the cross? Who is it that sees where Jesus is buried? It is the women. The women who are following him, even to the point of death. So what I want you to see as we talk about these three ideas is Jesus' openness toward and focus on and acceptance of women. In fact, that Jesus often goes far beyond what society would accept and expect of women. Yet, and this is a big yet, yet there are certain roles that women do not hold. Even in Jesus' ministry, none of the apostles are women. Even though there are women who are great disciples and great gift givers, even though there are women who sometimes understand Jesus better than the men, as we've already seen, none of the apostles are women. Now, you might ask the question, well, why? Why do we not have any women apostles? Well, we don't know why. But let me tell you, I think we know the reasons it's not. It's not because Jesus thought little of women. And it's not because Jesus thought they had no contribution to make. And it's not because Jesus was solely driven by societal convention. 
And it's not because Jesus didn't pay any attention to women. And it's not because Jesus had no good candidates who were women. Something else is going on here. None of the apostles were women because not everybody gets all the roles. That doesn't mean that some people are better and others are worse. That's not really what that's about. It means that God chooses to put people where he puts them in the way that he deems best. Now, we could say the same thing, by the way. Certain roles that there are some men don't hold. For example, Jesus sends out 70 to preach. Yet, there's only 12 apostles. What about those other 58? I mean, don't you think any of them would be better than Judas? They just don't get the spots. After his resurrection, there are 120 people. What that means is, there are a number of engaged, thoughtful, possibly even qualified men and women who are simply not chosen for certain roles. That doesn't mean they're lesser. It means God has a different kind of work for them. Not everybody's going to be an apostle. I also want to say this. I know we're getting out of the typical three-point structure here, but women are the first witnesses to the resurrection. Let's look in Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. We're going to read at the very end of Luke 23 and get into Luke 24. Luke 23 and verse 55. It says, The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. But on the, excuse me, on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, the Mary, the mother of James, and other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. So it's the women who see where Jesus is buried. It's the women who get up at the crack of dawn on Sunday morning to go to the tomb to anoint his body. It is the women who first see the angels and speak to them. In fact... It's interesting that the angel says, hey, remember what Jesus said to you? This is all women about how he was going to die and rise again. And they remembered his words because they had been with him back in Galilee. They followed him all the way here. They've seen him die. And now they're seeing this come to pass. The women are the first witnesses to the resurrection. So they go and tell the men and they don't believe them. Now, it's easy to say that's because they were women. We're going to talk a little bit about that in just a moment. But... I also think it has to do with the fact that it's really hard to believe someone rose from the dead. No matter who's telling you or what evidence they have. And in fact, they have trouble believing even after they see him. But it is notable that women are the first witnesses to the resurrection. Women's witness was generally disregarded in this time. We have the words of Josephus, 
who describes the Jewish system. He says this about the legal settings of the Jewish system. But let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of the levity and boldness of their sex, nor let servants be admitted to give testimony on account of the ignobility of their soul, since it is probable that they may not speak truth either out of hope of gain or fear of punishment. So we go on and on about how politically incorrect Josephus is, but that's the way people thought in that time. Well, women's word is not to be trusted. So isn't it intriguing that God would choose women to be the first witnesses, first ones to see the tomb, first ones to speak to the angels? In fact, there is some evidence that this created a problem when the gospel was preached because we actually have an account of an exchange between a pagan named Celsus and a Christian named Origen. Celsus ridicules the fact that the first witness of the resurrection was what he calls a half-frantic or half-mad woman. He's talking about Mary Magdalene, by the way. So that even later on, when the first witness comes, they say, oh, that's ridiculous. How could you say that a woman who is half-crazy could be trusted to give you this information? So... This is a tremendous honor given to these women. Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene first. And yet, the apostles are the primary witnesses of the resurrection. Even though they're not the first, they are the ones who are going to be fundamental in the spread of the gospel. Let's look real briefly in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1. Acts 1 and verse 8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. Now, it's not clear here whether he's talking to the apostles or to the broader group of disciples, but it is clear as the apostles continue preaching that they become the 12, the primary witnesses. For example, in chapter 2, it says specifically that Peter is speaking with the 12. Look in chapter 2 and verse 32. Acts 2.32, this Jesus God raised up, of that we are all witnesses. Well, chapter 3 and verse 15, Peter and John say, to this we are witnesses. But I want you especially to look in chapter 4 and verse 32. Acts 4 and verse 32. It says, Acts 4.32, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. Do you see that? The apostles were giving their testimony. The whole number was there together, but the apostles were giving their testimony about the resurrection. There are others with testimony to give, yet the apostles are specially designated as witnesses, even though they're not the first witnesses. In fact, Paul says that Jesus at one time appeared to 500 brethren at once, yet these 12 are the primary witnesses, and Paul, an apostle out of due time, who has a little bit of a different witness to give. So, women are the first witnesses, yet the apostles are the primary witnesses. So, you have that same pattern where they're given a blessing, they're given something that would have been really beyond its time, and yet there are some limitations to that. So, what do we do with all of that? Why are we talking about this? Well, you're probably aware that there are a couple of passages in the New Testament that stress the submission of women in the church. So I'm going to put those on the board here. This is 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 33. It says, As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, but they are not permitted to speak, So, as the law also says. 
there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. And the second passage is this one in 1 Timothy 2, verse 11 and 12. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to be quiet. Now, you can just imagine those passages don't go over well in our time. They essentially say that the role of teaching over men or a role of teaching in a public setting is not given to women. Now, this passage also has the application that a woman is not to be in spiritual authority, not to teach or exercise authority over a man, as in the position of an elder. Now, that doesn't sit well. So many people read those passages, and they see that, well, that means you don't have women preaching. That means you don't have women in your eldership. And so that means you are backwards, and you hate women, and that kind of thing. So the words haven't changed, but the culture surrounding the words certainly has. So here's what I want to say about that. The first thing is, uh, remember the context of these passages. And when I say context, I don't mean the specific verses around those texts. What I mean is the broader context in the New Testament of the role of women. You see, it would be really easy to dismiss Jesus as a misogynist. Because after all, none of his apostles were, were women. But that's not really fair to the evidence. We've looked at the evidence, and the evidence this morning has shown us that Jesus is incredibly welcoming to women. It's just that there are limits to what roles he gives. You see that? That's, that's context. It helps us understand, well, it's not just that Jesus went around and saying, I don't want any women. It's that Jesus was incredibly welcoming and yet had limits. So let's remember that the same Paul who wrote those words that I just put on the board also wrote these words. Galatians 3, 26 and 28. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ to put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying, in Christ we all stand before God the same, and God doesn't see the distinctions that distinguish us as individuals from one another, things like race or gender or origin or language. He says, no, instead, we're all one in Christ Jesus. That same Paul who wrote what we read a moment ago about women in the church also writes this, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Kincray, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risked their necks for my life. He goes on. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. I know those aren't common names for us today. Those are women's names. Over and over again, Paul is saying, let me just go down the list of all the women who are my fellow workers, who are my patrons, who work hard, who are with me in the Lord. Paul loves these women and serves alongside them. But that doesn't mean that they don't have a certain role in the church. So let's give that context. Paul values these women and the contributions they have made to him personally and to the Lord and his work. He knows what they've done. And yet they're still not to teach and have authority over a man. Context helps with that. The other thing I want to say is that we all have roles. 
and those roles that we have all have value. There is a certain spirit that I have seen, and I believe it is dangerous in the service of Jesus. It is the spirit that says if we can't serve in a certain way, then we're useless. It can also easily turn on other people because it can then say, if other people think we shouldn't serve in the way we feel we should, then they're holding us down. They're trying to keep us from doing what God has given us gifts to do. I've seen that spirit in my sisters who have been blessed with a teaching gift. And they feel that men are stopping them from some more public role. I have seen that spirit in men who feel they're qualified and should be serving as elders. And yet they have not been allowed to serve in a certain congregation. I've seen that spirit from men who believe that they should be preaching, even when good brothers say, no, you shouldn't be preaching, whether that's because of some failure of skill or whether that's because their integrity or some other part of them has been compromised. I have seen that from my preaching brothers who believe that they should be more valued and made over because of their preaching. And so they become resentful of others because this is what they are truly gifted in and other people should acknowledge that and encourage that. And the thought is this, if I don't get to serve in the way I feel I should serve, then my service is meaningless. And you don't see any of that with Jesus. Jesus doesn't ignore people. Jesus doesn't tell them their contribution doesn't matter. But neither does he shine the spotlight only on the apostles and the leaders. I'm so impressed by this. We just tend to do that, don't we? Like there are a few people who get all the attention, all the notoriety, all the influence. But it's Jesus who says, bring that little kid to me. Let me teach a lesson from the little child. It's Jesus who says, you know who gave the most of everybody here? It's that widow woman. It is Jesus who talks to the Samaritan woman with the past. It is Jesus who makes the hero of his story a beggar named Lazarus. It is Jesus who talks to the daughters of Jerusalem as he's on his way to be crucified. It is Jesus who makes the hero of his story a persistent widow. Jesus says these people are not going to be noticed by the broader world, but their service matters too. And not all of us serve in the same way. We all have roles. Paul writes this. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Each one of us has a unique contribution to make. We are a part of the body. We don't do it for glory or for glamour. And if we do, our heart is not in the right place. But let's use what we've been given and the role that's been assigned us to serve the Lord. There are some women who are gifted to teach. There are myriads of ways to use that gift and still respect the things that God has said about a woman's role in the church. And it seems to me that the secret here is not focusing on what we're not allowed to do, but focusing on all the opportunities we do have. You know, it's also true, the flip side, 
We don't talk about this very often. But men have been called to lead in their homes and in the church. And some men are not eager to lead. It doesn't fit their personalities. They don't like it. It's not natural. They would prefer to fade into the background. But isn't there something to be gained and learned from growing into a role you've been given? That maybe there is wisdom beyond ours in assigning those roles and giving those gifts? It seems to me that we all have roles. And rather than being discontent by comparing to someone else's role, the goal God has for each one of us is to serve in the best way we know how with the gifts we have and the role in which we've been placed. In Christ, it's not about the spotlight. The spotlight in Christ is always on Him, not on us. Our job is to use what He's given us to serve Him and to serve other people. That is the whole of our service. We all have roles. Let's embrace those roles. Would you pray with me about it? Oh God, our Father, we are so thankful for this time that we've had to open your word together. We're thankful for your Son and the amazing way he has reached out to so many, for the love that he's shown in coming, the love that he's shown in interacting with others, the love that he's shown us by giving his life for us. Father, sometimes we're troubled by questions like these. Uh, We're troubled by how to understand your word in light of a culture that's changed so much since the time in which they were spoken. And Father, I pray that you'll help us to have a spirit of humility and acceptance and love for one another as we think through these things. But Father, I also pray that you'll help us to embrace the roles that we've been given and to see the value in what you've given us to use our gifts with all our ability to serve you. Father, we are so thankful for good Christian women who are a blessing to us, who are a blessing to you for their service in your kingdom. Father, we're so thankful for all the many ways that they show the love that you've given, for all the many ways they are a strength for the great knowledge they have and the way that they share it with others. And Father, I pray for our women that you will watch over and be with them as they serve you in the way you've called them to. I pray that you'll help us all to support one another and give strength to each other. And Father, I pray that you'll bless us with a spirit of harmony in this local church. Father, we thank you so much for the way you guide us and love us. We ask you'll continue to bless this group. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Might be someone here this morning who needs to respond to the invitation. This is a time we set aside for anyone who has a need of a spiritual nature that you want to deal with right now. Whether you are far off from the Lord and you don't know about Jesus, you're not a child of God, and you need to make that right.